Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, with me to break down the latest in the banking crisis that's unfolding, Jem Carson, founder of Kia Volatility, and Julian Brigden, co-founder of MI2 Advisors. Hi to both of you. So grateful to have you both here with us. Thank you for having us on the show, Maggie. Hey, Maggie. Good to be Hi. here. Hi. Jem, did I say your last name right? You did, but the name of the firm is Kai Volatility. Kai, I knew it. I went back and forth. I'm car shopping, as everyone knows, who's been bearing with my trials. and tribulations. So I'm going to blame it on that. So oh, funny. We got, we, I got 50-50 there. Uh, but seriously, I'm so, I'm so happy to have both of you here today because I, I know I think a lot of folks listening out there are nervous. They have a lot of questions. So, so do all of us, I think. So do we. And this is exactly why Real Vision was launched in the first place, exactly to try to help people through sort of stressful times like this. So we're going to do our best for everyone listening to get you as much information as possible and help guide you through it. Um, if you haven't already, hit the QR code for a free trial and access to all of our coverage. And go ahead and drop your questions in the chat as usual. And we're going to get to as many as we can. Okay, let's jump in. So um, I, I really want both of you to just give me your reaction to what unfolded today. Julian, let's start with you. We did have the Swiss National Credit Suisse obviously under extreme pressure today. We did have the Swiss come out and say that they will provide liquidity, kind of a very general statement right here at the end of the day. Um, what do you make of this? I mean, to be brutally honest, Maggie, if I want to be the cynic, uh, we've known that CS was on life support system for a long, long time, right? This has been a bank that has been dying. Can you, you know, it's like that movie scene, I can't remember, you just die already, right? Just do it, get it over with. Now, you know, if you're a sick, you say, why did the Saudis say, no, publicly, all of a sudden, we're not just going to put any more money in it, right? Well, there's rumors that they want to buy the asset management arm. Right. And the, and, the, uh, and the wealth management business. Right. OK, so maybe that. I mean, you could say the same about Goldman. Why would Goldman advise Silicon Valley Bank to come out and recognize a massive loss on their security book, which would make them insolvent if they hadn't already had the funding lined up? Well, the rumor is Goldman wanted to buy, um, you know, SVB. Now, don't get me wrong. This has hit a market which is extraordinarily frothy, right? And everyone is going, you know, most of the young kids in the market going, oh, my God, this is 08 again. Eh, I don't think so, right? Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I think we're going to have a recession. We were always going to have a recession. This probably just makes it a bit worse. But is this the end of the world? I don't think so. I think I feel better. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure, but I think I feel better after hearing that. Uh, Jim, what are your thoughts? <clears throat> so we're pretty public uh, about talking about near the highs there and in, in, in recent highs in February that uh, the Fed had one goal, and that was to take some of the froth out of this market. They wanted, uh, they're selling calls, I said, to the market, not literally, but they're literally trying to uh, dampen the upside and get the speculation out of the market. It doesn't mean they want a liquidation. The Fed never wants they want to dampen volatility, right? So they've been sitting here trying to get this market down. Um, the, you know, not again, this is not a cynical conspiracy thing. The reality is this is uh, to some extent what the Fed wants, right? Uh, the Fed, the Fed wants, uh, again, particularly uh, crypto froth, uh, tech froth, uh, speculative froth out of the market. Um, you know, not a surprise that we see Silicon Valley Bank kind of uh, take get get taken out of the market. That we see uh, Signature Bank, right? Both both players in that space kind of uh, taken out. Um, board member uh, of of uh, you know the, of Silicon Valley Bank is on the San Francisco Fed, right? Like uh, this is this is not an no, unknown thing. The Fed has, I agree, been uh, with Julian been kind of working behind the scenes, aware that there's this happen now. Whether there'll be contagion, whether they'll be able to control it, 
you know, is always a question. The Fed thinks they have, they know what they're doing all, all the time and things fall apart, right? We've seen that plenty of times. So I don't think you can uh, rule out uh, anything worse happening. Structurally, that's the last thing I'll say right now is structurally banks are, uh, you know, the way <laughs> by definition a bank is a levered entity uh, and they generally have a, uh, a short put in the portfolio, in the sense that they are levered with a uh, with a breaking point on on um, you know uh, mark to um, you know hold to market securities versus marking them to market. And the second they get uh, have you know bank runs or money come off the table from their assets, that their assets are mismatched from their liabilities, they're going to have problems. And and so liquidity, you can get a liquidity event where these things get out of hand, and the bigger player has to come in and support them, whether that's the Swiss National Bank or the Federal Reserve. Um, that is always a risk in, in markets such as this. So it can get out of hand, but I don't think, I think it was relatively telegraphed. Yeah. I will say, Maggie, just yeah, on Julian, that point, yeah. if I can jump in a second. Ahead, the big difference that you've got to bear in mind is that the European banks, and this is because they don't really have a lender of the last resort, because then you don't have that kind of, you know, you've got the Bank of Italy and the Deutsche, you know, Bundesbank and so on have to all lend to their own banks, right? The ECB can put money into the big facilities, but backstopping them, they're national, okay? They've already, even on their hold to maturity books, which of course was the big issue with um, SVB, even on their hold to maturity books, they are marked to market, unlike the US banks. And their security holdings are much, much lower. And their marked to market books in Europe are less than 50% of any of the banks. And even the big boys in the US are 65%. And something like First Republic was almost 90, right? or is almost 90. So there's, there is a big, I just think the timing of this CS thing, whether you want to call it cynically, someone nudged it that way, right, or not, I think it's just hitting all at the same time. I do not believe that this is indicative of a global bank run. And if you yeah. look at, say, the CDS, so the credit default swaps, and I've got the screen sitting here, I mean, if you, and I'll share it with everyone, right, if you look up, um, I think you can hopefully see it. So if you look at this, Right. Oh, well, you know, this is all the change here in today in all the spreads, right? So here you've got Credit Suisse, obviously at the top. And then there's a big drop between 375 and kind of the next, well, Deutsche Bank's a bit of a basket case. Take the Swiss out. And then you're down to like, okay, ING, that's a big bank. It was up 15. It's because it's part of the bloody indexes, right? I mean, this is, don't get me wrong, were these markets overvalued? Have we run up a long way? Was an enormous amount of money in, um, in these European markets? Yeah, I mean, European banks are up 60% since October, right? Yeah, I, I agree, Julian, but I just want to say one thing. Yeah, this wasn't a Credit Suisse specific point. It's just about the structure of the banking system oh, writ on, large. Mate, Totally and, and at some point, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think we can right. agree on that. At some point, it, it doesn't it, matter what is, uh, you know, what you think or you, you, you know, if 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 the assets come out, uh, there are too many liabilities relative to assets because there's leverage. Sure, at some I mean, point, it's a every bank banking, on this planet, right? other than one, lend long, right? right. It's, it's part of the leverage. business. That's my point. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, so at at core, like there's always a tail, uh, and if it gets bad enough. Uh, we will have a banking crisis, right? So it's a question of, uh, you know, liquidity at the end of the day and who's willing to backstop it to stop, uh, you know, and, and the only entities that can are, are the biggest entities in the world, Correct. the Federal Reserve, et cetera. Um, so, yes, I, I agree with your point. Uh, and again, I, as I said, this is relatively telegraphed. I don't think this is a way I would agree with you, um, but that's not to say it can't be. And I think that's the important. And I and important. I think that's the worry, isn't it? And so and and you both both touched on this. When it goes out of the realm of like once the ball's set in motion, so much of this becomes confidence in psychology, and that's it. so. In terms of banking, Mike Green and I did an AMA the other day, and he made the point that with this episode, you you have telegraphed to every depositor out there. Well, you know, you could put your money in a money market and get way more than you had it sitting in in 
the bank. Now, that may not have been the intention, but through this discussion, that is one of the things that has happened. What is to stop everyone from moving from a bank deposit to a money market and what does that do? Nothing, do Maggie. It's very easy. Look, here's, I think it's very easy to do it these days. Click an app, right? Right. You know, you can go into your BA thing and go and buy treasuries, right? Go and buy an ETF, right? You take it out of your deposit account. It goes straight into treasury ETF. Um, so that's very easy. But to some extent, we have to understand this is how monetary policy works, right? You drain liquidity out of the banking system so that you tighten bank lending and you screw the economy. That's how it works, right? The question is, is in the process, does it get a little overdone and we get these sorts of things with some of these banks that were, you know, Credit Suisse who was living on life support system and you know, sovereign bank that was going to go down anyway because they were up to nefarious money laundering stuff or, you know, SVB because they clearly can't ma manage their ass from their bloody elbow when it comes to, you know, the balance sheet, right? Yeah, I, I don't think... JP yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree. And I think there's other things at play here that matter in the short term. Uh, ultimately, a liquidity run is uh, a function of liquidity and there's... Uh, other dynamics that work in markets that will probably determine whether or not this uh, finds a tail or not. Um, uh, you know, market dynamics broadly, uh, positioning very important. Uh, I don't think positioning is over levered, uh, and I think that in particular will play a significant role in making sure that the tail doesn't realize to the extent that people are afraid that it will. Um, and uh, obviously, the Fed, like I said, is also already out in front of this. There's also been regulation that's. <clears throat> been in place for some time now that's that will make this less uh, vulnerable the market the economy and sorry the uh the banks less vulnerable ultimately uh given capital ratios relative to where we were in, in a way the feds, don't forget maggie the fed's already pumping liquidity back into the system well, that's yeah. why the bloody nasdaq is up today right the nasdaq's up again today i looked at it this morning and i was like i bet you they bloody close it in the green right and they closed it in the green. Why? Because the Fed's pumping in more liquidity. So what does that do to the, uh, what do you think that does to the, you know, their moves when they meet? Because they're, right now, the, the people are still asking, are they going to raise rates? And technically, they're still doing QT, although that now they're also doing, apparently, QT and QE at the same time. Right. Give it with one hand, take it with the other. Yeah. Um, what do I think? So look, you know, in my former life, I used to be in a policy consultancy group that was only all it did was talk to central bankers. And I've got a bunch of mates who do that still. And I talk to them. And I'm still hearing 25 from the Fed and 50 from the ECB. Now there'll be dovish 25s and 50s. But that's still what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think. Uh... <clears throat> My personal opinion is the Fed has been looking for an excuse to pause for some time. Um, why? Because there are uh, two contending sides of the Federal Reserve that some that believe uh, that this is Spanish flu and that this, these, all these effects might be uh, short term. Um, and that at the very least, having moved 5%, that we need to, or 4.75 or whatever, um, that we need to stop and take a look at 5%. And they publicly came out and said that as a holistically that it's time to pause. The problem is that spurred a, you know, a front run and then eventual 20% rally off the bottom. That's what these things do. And yeah. what the Fed doesn't want, which is helping create a hotter, the wealth effect is helping create a hotter economy. And, 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 and they don't want that wealth effect. They don't want the speculative uh, action in the market. So uh, what do they do? Well, they've had to. They've been forced by the CPI and the hot in, uh, employment numbers to come back in and kind of talk out of two sides of their mouth. But at the end of the day, the whole goal was to get the froth out of the market, um, not to uh, not to not pause. So I really think this is what they've been looking for, uh, except they need to make sure that the tail is covered. And I, again, I believe they do. I think this has been kind of part of the, the, the again, not fully telegraphed because they actually I can't tell you the number of times the Fed thinks they know what they're doing and, and they kind of end up in a place that they'd rather not be. But I think this is what they intended to the great extent. And it's been 
very controlled, mind you. This is not like people are, you know, uh, crying right now, like acting like this is some massive catastrophe. This has been a very controlled orderly sell-off um, in every every way. Yeah, absolutely. Which which you know, in and of itself, it makes it nothing like oh eight. But you know, there are other people that sort of worry because in the beginning, it never feels like that until you know something happens or you get another event on piled on top of it which would explain, I think, why people are a little nervous. Uh, Julian, what do you make of the move we saw in bond yields? We saw the two-year German yield. I mean, we've seen moves that that we haven't seen ever since they started well, keeping records. Well, I mean, bigger moves, bigger moves than the 87 crash, without a crash. Um, I think you put it down to positioning. Um, and, I mean, the CTAs, I was looking, the CTAs, who you know look as though they were massively short this stuff because it was still all trending uh higher yields um just had their apparently just had their worst couple of weeks in a decade right because they got just blown away on this stuff right and so i think there's an awful lot of positioning adjustment going on maggie um if the fed look i've been on the record i've talked on you know macro insiders a lot about this started in you know last year that the market still doesn't understand the policy framework that the fed is trying to pursue they think this is uh they're going to march rates up and they're going to march rates straight down again and the only way that you do that is if you have truly destroyed the economy now i'm more that's what volker did right it's referred to as deliberate disinflation in policy environments. So in other words, you take rates up to the point that you literally drown the economy. It's dead, done, right? No inflation anymore because I killed you all, okay? That was never the plan. The plan is what they refer to as opportunistic disinflation. So you ride rates up to a level which is restrictive, okay? And at that point, you leave them on hold for a long, long time. It doesn't preclude the possibility of a recession. You hope that something comes along that doesn't necessitate the recession. Maybe we get lucky, we have a huge burst in productivity and trend growth is higher. And so we can stomach those, those you know, in, and more of the growth goes to real growth as opposed to inflation, right? You hope all of those things happen, but it doesn't preclude it. But what it does is it takes a long, 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 long time. So this idea that we were going to march rates up and then just start, Cutting them again was never the, the plan of the Fed. Now, maybe the, to Tim's point, maybe it was never going to work like that. And I'm pretty cynical myself. I don't believe the Fed ever gets it right. But that at least was the plan. So they must be looking at this in an environment where they've been trying to get the dot plots up and say higher for longer and go, we're not seeing the implosion you guys are seeing. So they need to talk that back end to push those yields back up bloody fast. Yeah, because aren't they aren't they now pricing in, Jim, a, a rate cut? Aggressive. No, yeah. not just hundreds of basis points of rate cuts. Yeah, and I would expect that. I would expect uh, people to come back out and you know, trot, trot out members of the Fed and, and start trying to talk it back up. I agree. I, I think that their goal was to get markets down, um, but I agree the the, the pricing in a, of, a, of a reversal is – Again, not what they they want. Um, if anything, um, I think the risk is uh, back into the curve higher for longer, given that a liquidation is likely to bring more fiscal stimulus onto the market, is likely to push um, more long-term um, inflationary, um, you know, structurally inflationary issues to the market. This is a cyclical uh, pullback, which is good. Uh, in terms of what they wanted, what they don't want is, um, you know, more, more stimulus uh, to the market on the back end. So I agree 100%. Um, and I get it. If anything, I, I would be really concerned. I think the reason this market might have risk um, down is not because of a liquidation or a banking crisis. Um, I think it's because of the bigger structural issues, which we've talked about, which is really the continued uh, secular inflationary pressures that are likely to remove long-term liquidity from the market. So I, I agree the bond market is getting this wrong. There are structural elements that cause uh, this liquidation to happen. It's a really function of money flows, but uh, this is not what the Fed wants, and uh, they will push back against it. 
Yeah, uh, Jay and Trillionex, that answers your question both about the Fed and, and the ECB, I think. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Julian, you, I think it sounds like you and Jem agree on inflation. You're also in the camp that inflation, are you still of that view that inflation, we are in a sort of structurally higher inflation environment? Because I know you and Rao tango on this. We do. We do tango on it, Maggie. Look, I think it all comes down to timing. Um, Short term, we are going to see inflation fall now, or in the medium term, let's say till the middle of next year. But to Kem's point, the question is, is if we go into, which is my base case, 2024, which is an election year, with a frigging great big recession in the US, which we're going to get, does Congress spend more money? And my belief, talking to my policy friends in DC, who talk to policymakers, is the answer is yes, they probably will. Now, the Republicans want to spend it on different things than the what they would say the woke Biden administration will want to spend it on. But they both want to get elected, Maggie, so they both want to be seen to be doing something. And I think, ultimately, that creates the same sort of broad fiscal stimulus that we got in the 60s into the 70s, which led us into a complete shit show, excuse my French. And I ultimately think that's where we're going. And at that point, then the Fed is going to have to make a choice, which no monetary policy authority wants to make, to cross a monetary Rubicon, which will send us to a world of bloody pain. Because I do not believe they have a Volcker bone in their body, okay? And I think things in that sense get a hell of a lot worse over the next five years to 10 years in the US, not better. Yeah, that's we're not that's, you, see, you see how Julian tried to make us feel better that it wasn't 08 at the beginning and now we're just- well, It's a question of distribution, right? It's not a question of up, down. And everybody's like, are we going up or are we going down? The question is like, in the short term, are we in a banking crisis with a liquidity tail in the short term? Or are we in a structural secular decline? And those are very different market things and you want to trade very different, uh, you know, uh, and things in your portfolio as a function of which one is more likely. What we are in is, I agree with Julian, I, I wish we didn't agree so much here, 68 to 82. And, and, and again, for the, for the reasons he asked, I don't have to talk to policymakers to know that uh, the average voter, which is a, a millennial every year, increasingly a millennial, does not believe the system is fair and believes that there needs to be right. a redistribution of wealth. Mm-hmm. And in particular, they're not completely wrong, right? well, no matter how you feel about populism, is they're at 40% of the wealth creation and household formation that baby boomers were at this point in their generation. So guess what? And they can't afford houses, and they're trying to create families and, and buy homes. They're living at home. So you are going to get continued political support for those that want to, you know, that are going to vote. And, and Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders or whoever you are, they're both populist. Correct. So it's just they're using different uh, social policy cues to appeal to their base. But the reality is the rusted out cities in middle America are the same thing as, as uh, you know, the populism that's on the left. And, and that reality, I agree with Julian, is what will ultimately drive more and more fiscal stimulus. In the 1960s and 70s, LBJ created, you know, the Great, the great Society program. Uh, you would have thought that a laissez-faire Republican, Nixon, would come in and change that policy. Guess what? He not only continued it, he accelerated the Social Security. He did price controls. These are very populist ideals because he had to. And the reality is every administration going forward here for the next four, eight, 12 years is going to have to follow that path because uh, this is a cyclical um, problem. In the market. Also, let's not forget, Maggie, just like the late 60s, in fact, worse, we're fighting a war. And it was Vietnam. Now it's a kinetic war with Russia, an accelerative cold war with China, and a climate change war. All of those demand vast quantities of money to be spent. And that's not a coincidence. People think of the 60s and 70s, they they attribute the inflation to three things. They say, okay, great society, fiscal spending, uh, Vietnam War, uh, and and, uh, OPEC crisis, uh, commodity problems. Weird, we're having similar things again, all all kind of lining up. uh, Is that a coincidence? No. Times of uh, inflation, times of populism are times of protectionism. Populism, by definition, is people. People belong to countries and care about themselves and their country. Corporations are 
international. You get times of globalization during these other periods, during times of populism, you get retraction, you get more resource scarcity. People use the power that they have to provide to their people, whether that's uh, commodities, right? Or whether that's uh, defense, you know, uh, or economy or monetary policy. So these things, uh, we are in a time of resource scarcity. It's a time of conflict. It's not a time of cooperation. And these ultimately are continue to be more inflationary um, along the way. So each, all these things are connected. Vietnam War, Cold War, 60s and 70s, not a surprise we're having another kinetic war. Uh, you know, not a, problem, not, not a surprise we're having uh, conflict with China. Um, I would expect to have more and more problems with uh, OPEC and other resource uh, providers as well. And I expect us to now use that as a bludgeon as well. That is part of competition. And I, I would expect to have that type of action here in, the six, uh, in, in this generation as well. So we have a question from Manuel. Um, Jim, why do you think tech is so resilient? Um, my view is actually, to be clear, if we talked two months ago, you wouldn't be saying it's very resilient, right? People right. are very, uh, uh, we got a massive liquidation that started early on in the cycle that really front ran the liquidation and markets started in February of last year, well before the market topped. Um, <clears throat> why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, positioning. Uh, nobody was positioned for that uh, going into the original decline. Uh, guess what? Uh, put positioning versus call, put call ratios in that space. Yeah, well. Not, not the broad public. Likewise, I was, I was as well. I was talking about it very vocally at that time, but <clears throat> but the important point here is is the public was was over levered to tech um, after the liquidation. Uh, what does everybody do? Start speculating on on a trend. The trend was down, and everybody started buying puts and, and retail and whatnot and selling calls, and now. Uh, you know, and, and was overpositioned into uh, commodity sector, uh, other banking value per se. And, and guess what? Uh, positioning gets too heavy one way, and then you get a broader liquidation, ball becomes unpinned, and you get a rebalancing. So mm. a lot of the, the put decay off of all this, you know, dealer positioning in the NASDAQ has been supportive going into March OPEX here. We've seen this particularly for the last week and a half. That's not a coincidence. It's because it's because we're in a big quarterly OPEX with lots of put positioning in the NASDAQ. And where have you seen the greatest liquidation? The stuff that went that the junk that went too high, which was ultimately the one that has the most risk, which is the Russell uh, small cap value. There's a lot of junk in there that just went up with everything else. Um, and that stuff um, now is, is, is the stuff at risk. I mean, again, a lot of it's positioning. Um, that doesn't mean the long-term trends, right, that we're looking at uh, ultimately of, of money coming out of duration with higher and higher inflation um, aren't going to be the, these secular trends. Uh, what it means is that we're getting a rebalancing and we're shaking the weak hands. And, I, and it makes sense in this cycle and we're, given where we are. So I, I want we're getting questions and I want to ask you both about commodities, because if you believe that we're in this, you know, in this structurally higher inflation environment, um, then, I, then I'm presuming that you're both bullish on commodities, but I'm not going to, I want you to talk us through it. And let me, let me bring some questions in here. Uh, Barris is asking, um, Jim, are you still on the same stance on the oil put? First of all, Julian, start, let's start with you. What, what do you make of, we saw oil down sharply. How are you feeling generally about commodities? Uh, you know, I think we, look, commodities obviously a very broad basket, but I would say, um, you have to split it into two. There's precious metals, which a lot of people refer to when they talk about commodities, and then right. there's the rest, which is pretty industrial. Uh, I uh, I think the oil looks like crap. It looks like to me like we're continuing to to, to follow the sort of 2000 chart pattern, in which case, you know, sort of post as we enter a recession, essentially, Maggie. So I think oil probably goes down into, maybe we can get it into the low 60s, maybe upper 50s. I hope at that point, that the Biden administration decides to refill the tanks, but I doubt it, okay? Um, the copper looks like crap. Um, all the industrial steel usage looks awful. All of this stuff is coming down. Is that because everyone's focused on the demand side? Yeah, I think so, and rightly, right? I think everyone is forgetting that China, and I, this, you know, look, I'm, I'm an old man now, and I'm allowed to scream at the TV, and whenever I hear people on, you know, the talking heads on the TV talk about, well, you know, China's going to open up, it's going to be disinflationary because all this industry is going to burst through and whatever. And I'm like, you didn't think they were sending us stuff the whole last two years? They were sending us industrial products, right? They were sending us finished product. They were just locking the workers in the factory to do it, right? What they weren't doing is those workers weren't consuming. So the only commodity really that those people are going to consume is energy. Right. So energy probably is the better of the performer on a relative basis, but we're going into recession everywhere else. 
Um, Precious Je metals. Wait, but I just want to pause you one one second there, Julian, and then we'll pick up on, on, on precious metals. We're at the bottom of the hour, which means um, that we're going to flip over to the platform. So uh, for those of you uh, who are members of the community, um, you'll see no nothing will change. For those who are on YouTube, hit the QR code, come join us. There's a trial um, and we want to get your questions in. So meet us on that side. Otherwise, we'll see you all tomorrow. Okay. So Julian, uh, finish up on what we're you saying about so, precious metals because so there look, was a knee jerk. Oh, I got to be in gold. I have to be right. in more assets. Well, I think we've actually done. We're flipping to what Kevin said. I think there's an element in which now we're providing liquidity. Uh, it may not last, but we're providing liquidity at a point where we're still fighting inflation. That's not good. Okay, that's a bit of a contradiction in which way we're trying to run monetary policy, and we have been long gold since. December, we've sort of been in and out. We got stopped out a couple of times in real on the macro insider stuff for profits, and we got back in. Um, this is what I think is happening, Maggie. I think this is now breaking. So this is the S and P versus gold logged. It goes. You can see what happened in 2000 when we entered the bear market. There, this is 2001 as the U.S. enters recession. I think this is the trend. We've broken that trend line again. I like precious metals on a relative basis. It doesn't mean that I think they continue to perform and they go up in absolute terms, but I like them on a relative basis. All right, so I'll play side. Okay, Jim, what about this question about do you have the same stance on the oil put? I'm not sure what they're referring to. They're obviously yeah, tracking been, closely. <laughs> yeah, somebody, yeah, I, I know. I, so I've been... Uh, since really uh, the bottoming commodity is very, very bullish now for some time. But this is a secular call. This is not a, a trading call. And obviously, um, these things never go in a straight line and shouldn't go in a straight line. Uh, this is, again, when I say secular, I'm not talking one or two years. I'm talking a decade-long, uh, mm -hmm. you know, call. Um, important to note, 60s to 70s, uh, you know, great commodity period, as we know. Um, you know, uh, by 82, energy was 32% of the S&P 500. Uh, it is three, three and a 3.5%, I believe, currently. Um, no, it's not going to get to 32, I don't think, this time around. Uh, that was it. It could, it could happen. It could, it could happen, right? But that would be a pretty crazy scenario. Um, but that said, I think it's a, a secular hold. Now, now that things get crowded, right? Nobody was talking about commodities when I was. Now everybody's in commodities. It was, it's been a place to hide. Mm -hmm. These things are structurally tied. You have to understand that if, if volatility picks up um, and, and correlation goes to one, the place where you get the most liquidation uh, ends up being in the place where the positioning is the worst. And often that is uh, in the places that seem safe, right? Um, and so, yes, if we get some broad liquidation and vol continues to rise, I would expect weakness in oil. The key here is that is a secular place to look for opportunities when things go on sale because there's a secular opportunity. Positioning is important. So there's a, there's a froth there. And uh, given kind of the decline in markets, I'm not surprised at this time around that that commodities are not just participating in the decline, but uh, that, that are actually fairly heavy here. Um, yeah. uh, that said, um, again, the second positioning gets back on sides, I would expect another run. Uh, that, that takes time to happen, um, and it generally takes pain. Um, but that is where the secular opportunity is. So that you have to you have to have a, a trading mentality, understand positioning, which we do, obviously, from both the volatility perspective and uh, broad uh, asset allocation side. But you also have to have a secular view on these things and what's happening underneath the hood from a structural perspective. So our view is structurally bullish commodities for a lot of the reasons I already stated with a, you know, with a cyclical um, readjustment period. 60s and 70s, we had three recessions. Um, uh, it's a couple of really ugly ones, but GDP growth was above trend in real terms. Really hard to imagine, right? How do you get in, in real terms? Like, uh, you know, an inflation hot, it was above trend. Much hotter, much warmer economy than we've had in the last 20 years. But uh, 68 to 82 markets went nowhere in nominal terms and lost 65% of their value. Mm. So the market is not the economy. The economy will be strong with recessions along the way that are that are going to be painful. But I would actually find recessions, when they sell off commodities into these recessions, those are your opportunities to really uh, jump in with two hands and two feet and really ride what's a secular opportunity here. Because again, the economy and demand should be pretty strong. We're running a demand side economy now. Mm -hmm. It is no longer supply side. 
economy. And we're doing it into really bad supply of, uh, you know, with a lag in, in, in increasing production in commodities. Uh, you know, this is a very inelastic curve with demand, a demand side economy. If we are going to continue to get fiscal, the demand side will take care of itself uh, in a very weak supply side um, situation. So I think commodities are, uh, again, a gift when they sell off into this world. I think there's a general view that, oh, we're going into recession. You have to sell. That's going to reduce demand. Um, guess what? This is different. We're not responding to recession with more monetary policy. We're going to respond to it with more fiscal policy. Ultimately, that is very bullish of commodities. I think that's a really important point, Julian, because we've kind of been living through this period where it's all been about monetary policy. Right. Um, and we haven't seen this sort of coordination, not that they're coordinating, but you know, the 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 fiscal side of it. We already have the Inflation Reduction Act, by the way. We're already talking about supply chains. And you anticipate because of the election that there could be more even more fiscal spending. Look, Maggie, we since 2016 I've had this view, and I've been writing what I call about these accelerative oscillations, right? How the volatility of the underlying economy starts to increase now because we moved increasingly to stop-go economics, where fiscal starts to play a, a a role, and started with Trump, right, with his fiscal jamboree, right? And it's just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the you just quoted the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, what a absolute contradiction in terms right let's let me <laughs> let me pour a bit of gasoline on the fire right and maybe if i drop enough on it it'll it'll explode so far that it'll blow it out right but it'll probably take me with it so i'd rather not do that but i mean this is this is farcical right we are going back to we're going back to central banking which is and i've talked about a lot with um macro insider crowd that is increasingly reactive not proactive. Proactive central bank is that nice little come in at the top, dampen it down a bit, come on the bottom, tap it up a little bit, which keeps you in that nice, you know, sine wave. Okay. This is reactive central banking, which is what happened in the late 60s into the 70s, where they are chasing the cycle, both on the way up and on the way down. Okay. And Ken will get this. This is negative gamma trading. You buy at the bloody high, you sell at the low, the volatility of the cycle does this. Okay. And I think we're going to have an ugly second half of this year mm. as the recession bites. We then, that's when oil will be down at 60 bucks. All those industrial metals will be down whatever level they're at. Okay. And then I completely agree as the fiscal comes in, because we've let that baby out of the, out of the shed now, right? There isn't a fiscal, a, a, a seed of fiscal rectitude left in DC or in Europe. Okay. And then they'll all spend money and that stuff will just whip again. Yeah, I, I agree that I think my only uh, addition to that, which I think is quite important, is that it's not that the Fed's doing something well, wrong. They just have the wrong tools. They, they've been put in charge of the economy with one tool, and that tool is no longer able to deal uh, with, with the circumstances at hand. And you're talking are, about interest rates. Interest rates, yeah. yeah. They can't control the problems here, which are structural, mm. with monetary policy. Right. Um, if, if we choose as a people, uh, politically, to, um, to, to vote for uh, a rebalancing of inequality, right? Um, which I'm not saying is right or wrong. Um, the reality is it's gotten really out of hand. Um, but you know, if, if we're gonna deal with that, yeah, if we're gonna deal with that though, if we, if we have decided politically that that is not fair, right? That word fair, just or, or equal, right? And, and those things are, those ideals are important to us. Uh, then we we reach this problem where the, where monetary policy can no longer serve its goals, um, and and it's put the Fed is put in a box because they now have a a dual mandate, one of which is price stability, which they can no longer control while controlling the, uh, maximum employment. They had this incredible fortune of saying, hey, we're going to decrease interest rates from twenty percent to zero, and we're going to continue every time. We, the market pulls back to give more and lower interest rates, more increased liquidity. We're going to do supply side economics. And we can do that because at the end of the day, that's deflationary because we're sending money to corporations and they're creating globalization and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and ultimately uh, providing supply to the market and, and more technology and better goods. Um, the cost of that was inequality. And so if we have reached our let, us, let them eat cake moment, which I believe we have, um, then, then we have no choice. The Fed has no choice but to sit back and, and be asked to do an impossible task, which is control both sides of the equation. So aside from the commodity sector, what 
performs well in that environment. We have uh, Machir asking, what would you advise regular Joe to do at these kind of in these kind of market situations? So he was talking short term for the next three to six months, but I think uh, that begs okay. the question longer term as well. What performs well in that environment that you both just described? I'll, I'll leave this one off. So yeah. there's two there's two broad trends other than commodities and dealing with inflation. There there are several trends that that happen during inflationary periods. Uh, one, uh, protectionism is generally uh, part of, of this time and resource scarcity, right? Um, protectionism means we all of a sudden care a lot more about what happens in our country with our own uh, resources. So we're going to have a lot of onboarding, uh, uh, onshoring, sorry, uh, of, of, of things. So that's a, an incredible trend that should be here for some time. If you look at what's happened the last 40 years, we've completely sent off um, the majority of our production abroad, right? Um, and I think this is true for most developed countries. So I would expect that as a major structural trend. Two, um, what happens during those times is instead of the trusting capital markets to be the allocator of capital, which is what supply side economics does, we all of a sudden trust government to be the chooser of winners and losers. So you're more likely to look at the budget uh, of the federal government and see what the government spends money on. Uh, I think you can pretty easily name what they are, right? The defense, um, you know, infrastructure, uh, education, healthcare, right? All of these things, and you can keep going. These are all areas that are sitting by the fountain, you know, the mouth of the fountain taking on liquidity. Guess what? If you're sitting by the fountain, you're going to get more water. Um, that, you know, that's going to drive demand. Um, do not go invest in, uh, you know, what the capital markets believe. Go invest in what government believes. So sit close to government. Uh, I think in particular, healthcare is an interesting one that not many people talk about. I think it's an area ripe for, um, you know, uh, disruption and technological improvement. And that will, and it's one of the most inefficient, most uh, heaviest costs to government. And I think it's a, an area of, of really non-correlated opportunity um, in this market outside of, uh, you know, commodities and other obvious kind of things. Defense as well, not just because the government is spending money on it, but we live in a great increasingly uncertain world where protectionism matters and resource scarcity exists. So that's another great place to invest. So I think that that's the broad uh, thought process. And I think if you do that secularly, again, this is not a three month call. This is right. a more secular call. I think you'll you'll end up in a very good place. Healthcare is interesting too because voters like that as well because it pisses them off. Everybody feels like they're being bankrupted, rightly so they are. Um, and so when you say right for disruption, that's the kind of disruption most people can get behind. Um, but, but it's funny because then maybe there is a role for tech if you're saying disruption. Yeah, there is collectively, of course. Absolutely, tech is not going away. There's a you know tech it creates growth. The question is, uh, you know, you have to think about discounted oh, yeah. cash flows now. It's not just about eyeballs. It's not just about market share. It's about, um, hey, can you profit here? Can you, do you have a good product? Technology is an incredible place to be, right? But you better be in the place where you can actually make money on it uh, today, tomorrow, the next year. If you can't support your, your technological ambitions with profits, you're going to be out of business. Um, or somebody with profits is going to buy you and make you part of their business. Yeah, and also, Maggie, look, I mean, this is... this. I totally agree with everything that's been said. I would say this, we've just had a bubble in tech and we had a bubble in US tech, right? And if we're going to a period of increased fiscal spending where, you know, an inflationary period, it is not going to look like the last decade. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've talked about this. We're gonna get a rotation in stocks that is going to be biblical in nature, in the sense that the last become first and the first become last. So the US, just like it did after the dot-com bubble, becomes unloved for the next decade. And everything that is performed in this decade underperforms, right? So the worst performing sectors of the market from 2002 to 2008 was US tech. And the best performing was emerging markets. I'm not saying you have to be very selective which emerging markets now you buy, because you're not going to be allowed to buy some of them. Okay, and it was Europe did better, the UK did better, commodities did way better. Okay, and if you want to be in stocks, I think you know there are certain sectors that are incredibly cheap. Right, the, I think my biggest trade PA since the start of this year was short the Nasdaq long the IBEX, so the Spanish stock market. Right, I think that's had an inordinately large run, and I think sure it's. I'm trading a little bit here because it's come, it's gone a long way and it'll come back. But I truly believe that the U.S. run, this dominance of the U.S., which we saw into the dot-com bubble, is over. And it will 
massively underperform. And it'll screw everyone because everyone's got their money here. Mm. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. And you you still like Europe? Do you like all of Europe? On a relative basis, Maggie, right? Remember, these relative trades, you know, everyone talks about, well, it'll outperform. Okay, there's two ways of outperforming. There's the nice way of outperforming. The thing that you're long rises in absolute terms. There's the nasty way of outperforming. Everything drops, but the thing that you're long doesn't drop as much. That's hard to trade from an individual perspective. And that feels gonna, like that's where we are? I'm, I'm actually going to yeah. disagree for the first time today. I actually don't agree with Julian on this. I, I think uh, during times of resource scarcity, uh, during times of competition, um, it's uh, it's not a, a linear uh, uh, calculation. It is not uh, about, um, oh, this is cheaper, this is expensive. The U.S. has the exorbitant privilege of the dollar. And not for long, the, What's that? Not for long. Well, that's, that's, where we'll disagree. that's where we'll disagree. Um, all right, mate. I'm just telling you. The yeah, money yeah, it's is fine to disagree. This is, this is a healthy the conversation. The money is all here. Yeah. So, but but my, my view here ultimately is that is a resource, right? That the value of, of uh, the availability of liquidity is, is crucial to business. Um, the U.S. is the biggest economy in the world. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's the golden rule that he who has the gold makes the rules. And unfortunately, this is not about fairness. This is not about egocentrism uh, of being an American uh, or or not, because I'm actually neither. I'm actually a British citizen as well. Um, but um, but I actually uh, genuinely believe that in times of uh, conflict, of times of resource scarcity, in times of inflation, which these things tend to hold, you want to be closest to the places of uh, of safety. Um, and we've seen this recently, right? In the last year and a half, we saw that dollar strength come in. Uh, as uh, as we've seen conflict abroad, I think we will continue to see that. I think that strength allows the Federal Reserve to stimulate its own economy at very low cost and to, to export inflation. I think the U.S. will continue to export its inflation uh, and continue to benefit from that exorbitant privilege. I think few, very few people understand that as the exorbitant privilege of the dollar means we can export as much inflation as we want as long as the, our currency doesn't get the, the, the more of a crisis we get, the more dollar strength strength you, you tend to see. I believe that will continue to be the case because what is your alternative? Your alternative is to go to China and risk putting your money at risk in a closed economy or go to Europe, which does not have resource um, security or defense security that is ultimately dependent on the West as well. So uh, this is not a political conversation. The, the reality is the U.S. is much more popular today than it was a year ago. And that's not just because of Trump. That's because the world needs us, or at least certain parties in this need us, in a world where you have conflict. It's either choose the, the, the U.S. and the strength there or choose China. And in a world of conflict, you have to choose. And you want to be close to the bully when things get ugly. Um, you don't need the bully when the things are peaceful and fine. And I think that will drive continued Federal Reserve stimulus that will help the U.S. economy at the cost, not to mention the onshoring and everything else that's likely to happen here to the, the largest economy in the world. Uh, Julian, just want to ask you. Um, I know we could we could debate for hours, and we'll revisit that because that that dollar dominance is something, as you know, that we break down constantly here at Real Vision, and we have very different views about that. And we bring everybody on. Uh, the the China reopening story, China in general. I hear two things coming from very smart people. A lot of uh, in, uh, sort of positive feeling about the fact that they're going to have growth, all that pent up demand when you lock people away that long don't care. They're going to go out, they're going to spend, they're going to travel, and that will feed into higher GDP growth, even though they're keeping their forecast conservative. Or then I also hear people very concerned about the dynamics internally of the Chinese economy and the risks that are still there with the property bubble. How are you thinking about China and and how it plugs into the situation we're facing right now? uh, So, look, I agree with both sides to some degree. I think we are looking at a short-term consumption, right, a burst of energy from that lockdown. Uh, It's mostly on the consumption side. Uh, On the industrial side, they're going into recession like the rest of Southeast Asia. Uh, And they're going into recession because we're going into recession and they sell us plastic dog shit. That's how the the trade works, right? That's what they do. 
and there is no great infrastructure spending plan. They're struggling with um, the housing market still. Can they contain it? They probably can, you know, but this is not going to be a sort of 0809 kind of rip from the bottom as they spend an inordinate amount of money um, and it drives industrial commodities. It's just not going to happen this time. The Western world, the developed world, is going into recession. They will demand, you can see it already in their data. You can see that all the export data in Southeast Asia, and I'll show you that you've got that quizzical look on your face, I'll show you the bloody charts, right, is, um, is starting to turn against, the export numbers are dropping from Southeast Asia. And the reason they're dropping is we are sitting on a massive inventory overhang here in the West. Julian, I actually agree with you. Oh, okay. Uh, quizzical, Sorry, you that no, no. The quizzical that look quizzical is because look. you're. I feel like you're contradicting your trade just prior, which no. I disagree with you on. Which is like you were saying. You said you were saying don't invest in the U.S. economy, invest in abroad. But now you're saying China's no, 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 no. A, I, is a. What is I, a, I there's different. Look, and you go into recession. Okay, typically, often the dollar goes up until the Fed starts to cut and print. Okay, then it becomes. That's how you come off the bottom. It's a. It's a weakening dollar. Okay. What I, you have to be very careful about dollars here, okay? Because there are dollars that are vulnerable and there are dollars that can benefit. So in a recession, my fear is the money, go, and in a US recession, the money that is invested in the US from the rest of the world, which was dominantly Japan and Europe goes home and the emerging market dollars weaken. So what you will get is you will get Euro MEX that will rise euro singapore dollar that will rise euro aussie that will rise euro dollar that will rise dollar mex that may rise aussie dollar that may fall against the us dollar okay against the dollar will fall so it's not one dollar maggie and this yeah. is having spent 30 years trading fx I scream, and as I said, I'm an old man, I'm allowed to do this. I scream at the talking heads when they say, well, the dollar index, it's the fucking euro. <laughs> no, and you, but you, both you and Weston are, are on your soapbox about, you know, the cross, not the dollar. Uh, two, two questions. I'm going to close because we're almost out of time. Uh, this is for you, uh, Julian, from Yi. Uh, is it a good price point to buy TLT? Um... No, not yet. I would say I was looking at this the other day. We're getting close. There's a there's you could argue there's a big base building here. Um, but I would want to see TLT break above call it one ten. Okay. Uh, Jim, you can feel free to answer that as well if you want, but the question for you is, because I'm going to make sure I get these uh, viewer questions in, if we hold important levels into OPEX, do you still believe in the thesis of a possible blow-off top before the potential for a bigger liquidation event? Yeah, the reality here is we're in a secular right um, decline with, uh, with positioning that broadly is prepared for this. Like, Julian and I, for God's sakes, agreed on all but one thing today. Um, this is a narrative that is that has become more central. Um, and and the, when that happens, uh, knowledge is vol dampening, right? At mm. the end of the day, uh, you have a uh, you have a situation where um, you know the world is is underlevered uh, broadly to, to historically to their equity. It doesn't mean there's not macro risk, and that doesn't mean this market won't decline, right? But that means that you have positioning contra. Uh, you know, and, and the reflexivity of, of that positioning contra the macro flows. Um, macro flows will win over the long run, but uh, it, it, the path matters, right? And so mm -hmm. we, it's not just a function of up or down. It's a matter of path to how we get there. And my, my view is that because positioning is the way it is, you're likely to content, continue to get uh, counter trend difficult moves uh, at times here, which we saw a 20% rally off the bottom in the last three months before this recent liquidation to try and and get the shorts out of the market. It, things always take longer than you think because knowledge is vault dampening, because people are prepared for it. We knew about a housing crisis in 2005 and 2006. It didn't happen until 2008. We, we didn't, um, you know, we knew about COVID actually, there's a much shorter time frame, but in December and January, I was talking about it with my institutional clients, uh, you know, 
two months before uh, the liquidation came, and then we got 30%, but we got a big rally before it. The reality is positioning matters. You have to bleed out the shorts. You've got to bleed out the puts. You've got to take uh, the positioning out of the market. That's the way markets work. Uh, so there's a cyclical call along with a secular call, and you've got to kind of think of the two together. Uh, my call has been broadly for us to shake that positioning before we get the longer term liquidation. Um, we got that to some extent. It wasn't as much as we, we hoped. Uh, but that said, you know, we did get this counter trend rally, which we called for for about three months. It did end right in the middle of February, like we kind of called for. The question is, it wasn't as big as we hoped. And the um, and the positioning didn't wasn't unbalanced enough to create a real liquidation. The question is, you know, is this going to be it? I think people are relatively hedged here. I think the the uh, central bank, the Fed knows knows what's going on. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, and I and I think this will ultimately be resolved in the short term, uh, as Julian has agreed. And we're likely to see another kind of attempt at a run to shake, long at least to bleed out um, vol positioning. Uh, time uh, can be the ultimate solution, not a blow off top. So it's going to be a a frustrating uh, time for shorts. That's just how it works. And that may be a function of time or that may be a function of uh, a counter trend price, but some combination of the two will ultimately come to us before the broader liquidation. Comes. Yeah, holding that holding that cyclical within the structural is, is, is really hard for people. Do you both think that we are gonna see this banking crisis worsen? And this is where we'll leave it. Is it gonna get worse from here? Julian, you first. I mean, look, it, it it depends on positioning, Maggie. I mean, you know, are we going to lose a lot more regional banks? Sure. Right? They're upside down on their business model, right? They're lent at two, they're funding at five. Oh, sorry. Um, the, uh, so the answer is yes. Um, is it going to get worse tomorrow morning? Does it spiral no. out of the Fed's control is maybe the better I, question. Okay. And I would say on balance, I think not. Tim, what about you? Yeah, and, and this is where people hate me. Uh, it's it's less of a function of up or down, which is what everybody wants to know. Are we buying or are we selling? Or a function of distribution, right? And the reality is that, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there's a fat tail. There's a leptocurtic distribution. Uh, there is always this uh, probability of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, particularly in a banking system that is leveraged and has this breaking self-fulfilling uh, situation. So you're in a fat tail situation. Uh, whereas the probabilities are still right bias. And, and so I think at balance, the odds are, are not high for a major liquidation. Um, that, that having been said, um, can, we, can we go lower um, you know, before we go higher? Yes, uh, I think somebody's gonna come in and, and, and give you a green light pretty soon. A um, couple of important little things short-term, we're in a five-week OPEX cycle. Um, that means there's longer time before the decay of options come back. We're coming out of a March quarterly OPEX. So there's a lot of um, uh, people decaying longer vol into this. That's why you've been unable to see the market really break. Uh, actually, more than just the all the conversations you've seen, the, the, the counter trend rallies you keep seeing are because the March puts that are, made, that are the biggest positions in the market are bleeding out and going to be gone Friday morning. Um, that's important uh, to kind of, uh, I think, also providing some stability um, into a world uh, that that could otherwise get dangerous. So my bet is with Julian that that this is uh, something that we will work our way through. You might shake uh, things kind of left tail a little bit before you rally, but I'm right distribution, fat left tail. And that's kind of how I would play. Fantastic. You have both been amazing, tremendous. Thank you so much for walking us through all this and really sort of broadening it out to, I think, what was a much more important discussion. We appreciate the extra time you both gave us. Um, we have links where to find both of your great work. And Julian, you'll be doing a Macro Insider, if I'm not mistaken, with Raoul tomorrow and Harry Melandri. Is it tomorrow? Blimey, time flies. Yeah, I think, I think it might be. So stay tuned for that. And of course, we'll be back with the Daily Briefing tomorrow, 4 p.m. with our old friend Ed Harrison. So be sure to join us for that. And then we have an AMA with Raul, Andreas, and David Madden on Friday to wrap it all up. So thanks Actually, I think to all it's of you. Friday, Maggie. I just checked on oh, my diary. Oh, is it? Okay, sorry. False advertising. So Friday, we're really stacked. But appreciate you all being along for the ride. And hopefully this was helpful. Thanks to both Perfect. of you. Have a great night. Thanks. Take care Bye -bye. and good luck out there, everybody. If we want to change the outcomes for this really screwed up world, where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets so we can't afford as many assets as we like. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves. 
come right. And that's by unfucking your future. Some of this is going to really fuck your future in 20 or 30 years' time. But we've got time to figure that out because it's unstoppable. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.